Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. Welcome to Serious Film People. If we're being honest, this is where we may be expecting an introduction, but we ain't got no introduction. We don't need no introduction. I don't have to deliver any stinking introduction. Well done, Ken. We are talking about John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt, and the ever-amusing Walter Huston as three Americans who tend to prospect for gold in the rugged and desolate mountains of eastern Mexico, only to end up faced off with challenges that will test their humanity. We're going to start as usual. Had we seen this movie before, Josh? I had not seen this movie before, uh, first time. It's, I, I don't know if I'd say it's been on the list for a long time, but it, you know, I have been aware of this movie for a long time. Unlike a few other uh, Best Picture nominees from 1948, uh, a few of which I was hearing of for the first time doing this podcast series. But Treasure Sierra Madre, obviously, is, you know, I've been aware of it for a long time, but this is the first time I've seen it. And TJ? Uh, I had seen it before a number of times, and I suspect my first introduction to it was probably your first introduction to it, which was 2004 Mark Cummings' Fundamentals of Film Class. That's correct. If I recall, this was the maybe second or third film we watched in that class, and uh, it was used primarily to to teach narrative and character motivation through sort of through vi- through visuals or through ordinary world plot beats at the beginning. So one of the things I remember fondly about this movie and learning about this movie was there was a time, at least in my life, where I was like, oh, I like movies, but I don't understand what makes them good. And so like now, now watching it, you're just like, of course, that's what people do in good movies. But at the time, it's like, oh, notice how he you know, asks people for money to spot him a meal and he uses a fellow American. So he's trying to appeal to, you know, some <laughs> patriotic comrade. Oh my gosh, this is mind blowing. And it is, I mean, it's good writing, but uh, it is, it's very good writing. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get to that, by the way, that scene, because I want to. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So sorry not to get too heavy into that now, but just, uh, it was one of those movies that was early, early in my film education. And I think it's a good film to, um, kind of teach people with because it's both entertaining and very well well crafted. Agreed. And I, I will be honest, what I distinctly remember about watching this and why I agree, it must have been one of the first two or three films we watched. I do recall I was still trying to get the hang of writing out longhand notes in the dark while watching a movie mm. because uh, the notes for this movie are illegible to me, really. Um <laughs> Wait, do you still have them? 19 years later. I don't have them on my person, but they are in a box back in my parents' basement. And about... Uh, Official property of the U.S. government. Now. <laughs> exactly. They are, they're, <laughs> they are in the storage. Yeah, they're in the warehouse. Top um, it was men. About, no, it, wasn't, it, was, it was before the before the pandemic. I last went through a box and found some uh, old film class notes. And yes, I do recall coming across this one in particular, and that it was—I can't remember what it was dated, but um, yeah, I, I could make out Dobbs and Howard and uh, Bob Curtin. Um, but yeah, it, I was still getting the hang of jotting out my notes in the dark. So yes, like TJ, uh, this goes back to two thousand four for me. Oh God! What, Josh, hold on for, Josh for the listeners yes, uh, at home. I'm holding up a textbook from our high school film class from 2007 yeah. called Hollywood Genres by Thomas Schatz. Schatzy. Uh, yep. Shout out to Mark Cummings. I don't know why I still have this, but I still have this. And there's some little notes in the margins about 
hardboiled detectives and Ugh. westerns and sci-fi and it's uh it's good stuff this and is, is the it, driest fucking book i've ever read in my life by the way and if i recall there's the the print is like so crammed at like the margins yes. are you know so it's about a thousand words per page on there it was one of those things where you get assigned like 40 pages you're like that's not that bad and then you get to read it and it's like oh except that it takes me like eight minutes it's a page, like page. You know? yeah. yeah yes well it's a dense reading it's not this isn't it's not quick reading you have to know it was and it, it, it talked about film the way that that textbook does that they tear pages out of in dead poet society you know <laughs> it's like movies are made not to entertain but to tell narrative stories you know and you're like oh. i i've seen this movie several times since i can't tell you exactly how many because i've always owned a copy in some form uh so it was nice, however, to sit down and rewatch it. My wife's first watch last night, mm, so wow. um, mm-hmm. she finally agreed to sit down. She's not wild about Westerns, and she always thought this was a Western. It took two R doing this podcast to convince her that it's not pure Western. It's not a traditional Western. Yeah. Um, it's got some it's got, it's got some hallmarks in it. Sure, but it's not... It's not Western this is adjacent. Not, uh, this is not yeah. a John Wayne or, or John Ford... Uh, Western. No. In fact, no. um, we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk after this episode about other films from 1948. So westerns will be mentioned. I, I don't doubt. But um, I, I guess let's jump into this. This is an interesting. This movie's got an interesting backstory to it, in the it sense does, that yeah. it's, it's adapted from a novel uh, written by a, a German uh, question mark. Really, His, the author's name is B. Traven, but nobody knows who B. Traven is. Uh, so how do we know it's German? That's that's a good question, but everyone seems to Das B trap him. <laughs> there he is. He's on the he's on the line now. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a it's an interesting source material, and you can kind of you can see if you know anything about John Houston why he's fascinated by this story. Uh, but yeah, nobody really knows the origin. There's there's a lot of a lot of um, I think legend behind how it came to be written. Sure. So the novel came out in 1927. In a brief, uh, dip our heads into TJ's literature corner. TJ, have you read the novel? No. In fact, I didn't know it was based on a novel until this morning when I was watching the film again and was just looking at like what Oscars it was nominated for or not and was like, oh, this was not a John Huston original. Mm -hmm. So the next question I was going to have was, it, it, again, it teaches literature corner anything about B. Traven, but it sounds like no one knows anything about B. Traven, so I can't ask you what other books he or she has written or anything like that. That's what a very good writer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's it. That's it on teaches literature corner. Very brief, <laughs> brief stay. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like, have you read it? Nope. Do you know it was a book? Nope. That's been teaches anything by the author. Nope. Okay. Yep. Uh-uh. Next, yep. <laughs> that's our show. <laughs> books. I don't read them. <laughs> this, uh, the the film is being uh, being produced. This is, by the way, the f- one of the first uh, Hollywood movies to ever be produced on location outside the United States. Um, right, I read that. We're yeah. talking. They're they're filming this probably. Uh, this is a five month sh- five month shoot in the state of Durango, Mexico. So, right. Um, that's if I'm correct, eastern uh, eastern Mexico near the, the Gulf, and. Uh, it was uh, not supposed to be as expensive as it turned out. Shame on Warner Brothers for thinking it would be cheap, given that if you've got John Huston and Humphrey Bogart on the set 
at least half your budget's automatically going to whiskey and and other booze, probably. <laughs> so, especially in Mexico, they're they're going to argue that they can't drink the water, so they need the. That's what they would. That's have, true. That's absolutely what they would have been arguing. For the record, brief correction in geography corner: Durango is actually on the closer to the western side, uh, closer to the Pacific oh, than okay. the Gulf side. But it's it's kind of like south, so it's kind of the narrow, skinny part of Mexico. So like, okay, it's kind of close to both, but it's closer to the Pacific side. Okay. It certainly irritated uh, Jack Warner over at Warner Brothers. Uh, he became rather irate because this went on for much longer than uh, had been intended. But Houston being Houston, uh, he wasn't going to be rushed. In fact, uh, I've read this story in multiple sources. In, I read it in, a, in an article one time, and I've read it, uh, I've read it online in various other, sor- various other sites. Um, and came across it again this weekend. But there's a... There's the a story that apparently Humphrey Bogart wanted to compete in some kind of sailing race out in the Pacific. And as they, the date of the race was approaching, he was pestering Houston over and over to get done with the shoot. that They needed to actually finish it. And he's like, Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> Stop it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the one you get, okay? Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> he's like, Houston, we got a problem, Shane. Houston was not uh, really wild about anybody irritating him, particularly uh, his lead actor. And so eventually, despite the fact that they are they, they were friends, uh, he, he allegedly blew up at him and scared Humphrey Bogart enough that Bogart stopped bringing up the, the, the sailing race. Um, but it, it was uh, it was it did kind of get out of, I think, Houston's control or hands as far as uh how long it was taking him to get this done and to be fair this is on location so they are they are out in uh mexican country out in the the, the wilds outside of bandit countries um they're they're not in cities or towns filming this yeah we got humphrey bogart in one of his most legendary roles as fred c dobbs yeah i think this is maybe one of my coldest takes you're ever gonna hear in this podcast but when i was watching this i'm like that hum- humphrey bogart guy He's got the juice, man. Yeah. He's got it. Right? Yeah. Guy's got the juice, for sure. Exciting to yeah. see where he Ice takes it from take. here. Ice cold take. Humphrey Bogart's great. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Even though this is 1948, so he and, he and, he and Houston are friends. They, uh, I mean, Humphrey Bogart's first big like claim to fame was probably either High Sierra or the Maltese Falcon, which is both, they're both, I think, 1941. And Maltese Falcon, of course, is a John Houston film. Um, in fact, his father, Walter Houston, who we'll talk about shortly, he plays Howard in this film. He appears in Maltese Falcon. Here they are coming together again. They've worked together, I think, once in between here, and they'll be back. In a f- they'll, they'll be back in a few years with the African Queen. And this is actually a double feature for them. They made this Treasure Sierra Madre back to back with Key Largo, which is another 1948 film that we're not talking about because it wasn't. Stay tuned for the picture. recap episode. Yeah, next week. Yeah. But they, so they, they were working together a lot during a one year time span at this point. My, my, it might explain why Houston probably blew up at him. Can I give a little bit of a hot take? I actually don't really care for Humphrey Bogart in this movie. We might really? be getting mm. ahead of ourselves here, but watching it this time, I prefer the more kind of subdued, um, hollowed out man of Humphrey Bogart when he's, um, in Casablanca or Maltese Falcon. The devil may care. And, devil may care, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, and in yeah. this, when he, especially when he's going mad and he's getting manic, it's uh, 
I don't know, it felt very... Also because, and again, I'm getting ahead of us a little bit, but their way of playing Madness is like having him just kind of say things out loud. Like, I'll go back and see if he's dead. Oh, you know, and, um, and I don't know, it feels a little like... Well, to me yeah know? okay so like a, a guy going mad in the 40s is going to play a little different a little less subtle than it would nowadays i agree but at the same time like i think because he is so controlled and so like blase in the maltese falcon and in casablanca which are the two bogart movies i've seen before this um seeing him so in control and uncaring it kind of heightens it when he actually does give a shit in this movie, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I think that, like, there's, yeah. it means more to For see sure. Humphrey Bogart, a guy I usually see completely cool, lose his cool. You yeah, know? I, I appreciate the, the range. I just don't know that he pulls this. Well, off I also as think, well. I think he, I actually think he does. We'll talk, I, we can talk about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised with that take, I'll be honest. The, the him talking to himself thing is one thing. I agree that's like a little hokey, but I kind of just chalked it up to the 1940s and like cl- cluing into the audience that he's losing his mind a bit. Everyone like, talked to themselves out loud in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But like, I mean, just like, I guess that's like just the difference in cinematic language between then and now. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I do think the, when he's like talking to Curtin and going mad, like there's like a bunch of dirt on his face. Yep. His eyes are wide and white and his teeth, he's got really big teeth. And, like, he's got a really big mouth. And, like, when he bares his teeth and, like, is snarling at Curtin, like, I think it really works, personally. I think it's great. I think, I think well, you're you're talking exactly to something that the film plays, I think, really well. And why I like his performance, because both he and the film are, are, are so in sync. The fact that as the film goes on, he becomes not only more and more consumed with his paranoia and his his kind of insecurities. Greed. And it's well, greed. certainly greed. That's, yeah, uh, that's what's that's what's causing the paranoia and yeah. the, the insecurity and, and drumming up the insecurities. But also, he's becoming consumed by more shadows. He's being consumed by dirt. He becomes dirtier. He's more tired and haggard looking. And mm-hmm. uh, there are more night scenes as we go on later in the film. Yeah. So he is constantly, as the film goes on, just all around darker, a darker figure, darker character. Yeah. And he does, I think, lean into that. I think fairly well. Uh, I can get where TJ's point is. He yes, he does this thing. If you've ever seen the African Queen, which is a few years after that, uh, he won, he won his Oscar for that film. He does the same thing in that and the Kane Mutiny when he gets kind of rattled and starts to lose it. Humphrey Bogart has a tendency to talk rapidly, and his just his voice elevates and goes up higher, and he just kind of seems manic. Forced. Yeah. Sometimes you could argue. I can see where some people might think it's it comes off as forced, but that's just it's just a Humphrey Bogart thing that he does when he is losing it. So we're we're talking about him losing it and talking about greed and all this. So let's let's set this up. Like what in case someone hasn't seen Treasure of Madre in a while, let's talk about what this is. So we open with Humphrey Bogart, this character named Dobbs, living in Tampoco, Mexico. Is Tem- that what it's called? Tampico. Tampico, Mexico, and he's dirt poor. And walking around, just like asking, approaching Americans who are in Mexico, and be like, "Hey, can you stake a meal for a fellow American?" Just you know, asking for their change, basically, so he can feed himself. Well, and he feed uh, himself, but every time he gets it, he spends it on anything but food. Well, he does. I mean, he eats. I was gonna he say he does a meal every he, once in a while. The first yeah. time, before, the first, but the first few times, it's like he gets a shave and well, no, he but, buys a beer. Well, the order, the order in which he does it is he he does buy doesn't he buy some he's got he buys some food with a drink he buys a lot of ticket 
He buys a he shave buys a lottery and, ticket. And a cl- he cleans up a, a brief cut. He shave. gets he gets pestered to hell to buy the lottery ticket though. By he by Robert Robert Blake. Blake yes, a young so that's that, Robert Blake. That yes. little kid oh in brown face will grow up to murder his wife and then allegedly. play the creepy white faced man uh, in Lost Highway. Allegedly, so. we're gonna say ale- TJ means allegedly murdered his wife because he was acquitted. But yes, uh, fun fact, fun fact, the restaurant at which he murdered his wife, I'm going to say he did, even though he's acquitted, I'm going to say he did. Uh, that's like right around the corner from my house. I've been there. Good food. <laughs> that's he, he, he had his wife killed when she was sitting in a parked car in the neighborhood by the restaurant. And I live in that neighborhood. So as a lawyer, though, my favorite, one of, I think my favorite aspect of the Robert Blake story involving his wife's murder, his defense was that he wasn't present at the time of the shooting because he, if I recall correctly, had gone back into the restaurant to retrieve his pistol, which is gun, which he had left in the restaurant. And it was verified that that was not the gun used to shoot her. But that was his defense. He had brought a gun to a restaurant. Oops, I forgot it. I need to go back in and get it. That is some... Not great. Yeah, I mean, like, I've left my car keys on the treadmill at the gym. I can't (laughs) imagine being like, that meal was great. Everybody got got all their stuff? All right, let's head out of here. Shit, my pistol. Honey, warm the car up. I'll be right back. Well, I guess, I guess to Kent's point, it's such an obvious, like, staged alibi. It's such an obvious staged alibi. We're like, oh, it wasn't me. I first of all wasn't there. Second of all, didn't have my gun because I was going to get my gun from elsewhere when she got shot by a different gun by somebody else. And like, give me a fucking break, Robert Blake. <laughs> so, so for everybody's, anybody who's interested, I'm sure we can start a true crime episode surrounding Hollywood's inf- most infamous. But uh, for now, just know, yeah, Robert Blake is, as TJ said, the brown, the the brown makeup faced little boy in both the beginning of the film, and he'll show up at the end as well. But Josh, to your point, he's starting off um, approaching people on the streets. Begging for money. He's a guy hard on his luck. That is Dobbs, not and Robert then Blake. He, and then he hooks up with this guy named Curtin, and they do like some day laboring for this guy who ends up not paying them. And then they... He's like a Trump contractor, that guy. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. time to pay, uh, he heads out. But that's important. We're gonna, He's going to come up later. Um, and then they like spend the night at like some cheap, like, you know, 50 peso for a cot night, just a, a roof over their head place. And they run to this guy. Oh, so negro. <laughs> that's right. The yeah. black bear. Um, they run to this guy, this old timer who talks about prospecting and digging for gold and how lucrative that can be. And like, he says he knows how to do it and that, uh, he could take them up and they, they say, okay, let's do it. So they go with this guy, this older guy. And a a key thing to this conversation too, I think is he talks about how they're like, you need to have three, any more than three people and kind of the, the getting gets lesser. You don't want to go up on your own because you won't survive. And if there's two of you, there's always you're always paranoid about getting murdered. And I think that's a really important. Absolutely, given where the story goes. Yeah. So, long story short, they go up into the mountain. The three of them: Dobbs, Curtin, and uh, Howard. Howard is the old guy. Yep. Um, and they they do well. Like <laughs> I kind of expected more of like a hardship, but like they find gold pretty quickly because. The, the point of the movie is not the hardship of how hard it is to find gold. The point of the movie is what gold does to you and what, like, the prospect of 
a big financial uh, windfall does to you and how quickly people turn on you. And to quote Dobbs when they find the gold, that's the sweet sugar papa likes. Oh, no, no, that's, oh they, that, that's not when they find the gold. That's when, when his lottery ticket comes back. That's the sweet that's right. sugar papa likes. Yeah, like, because oh. yeah, the, the, the way the lottery ticket pays off is uh, he uh, Dobbs is convinced by a young Robert Blake and Brownface to buy a lottery ticket, and then uh, they need like $600 to get started between three of them and they're short but then he his ladder ticket comes through and then deus ex machina that now they got enough money break into act two to go into the hills um real quick i want to say that like i thought it was interesting that this movie is effectively about three people who come into a large amount of money and then slowly in some way or another turn on each other right that's kind of this whole thing um this week i also watched the movie shallow grave danny boyle's first movie um, because I'm listening to the Blank Check podcast on Danny Boyle's movies. Uh, that also is about three friends who get into a big financial windfall under nefarious circumstances, then slowly turn on each other. And I thought that was like a good parallel. Shallow Grave, Treasure Share Madre. Have you guys seen Shallow Grave? I have not. Well, yes, cool but I assume like Danny Boyle has. Or 09, I, think, I think I watched it right after Slumdog Billionaire was big. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Good movie. Liked it. Talking about the, the start of this film, going back to the beginning and how it opens in Tampico, Mexico, on the streets, um, you're talking about him going up to Americans. It should be noted that the film follows him uh, approaching the same man in a white linen suit three times. Actorial debut of this man. Yes, yes, that's right. The, the cinematic debut as an actor of John Huston, the director, the writer and director Houston. of the film. Uh, he's got only a few lines of dialogue on the third time because the first two he says nothing. First, hands him a coin and yep, moves on. Yep. And as Dobbs puts it, uh, he admits fully on the third time when he's finally confronted by Houston's uh, white linen suited gentleman uh, that he's not looking at the man's face. He's not really paying attention to the people. He was just looking at his hand and the money he was giving him. Um, that's it. He's just begging for money, and that's all he's concerned about at the moment. Which, admittedly, he's down on his luck, and he's trying to survive. Um, and that's just... It's what happens to people when they become desperate. And to your point about when they first meet Howard, uh, Howard has a very realistic, very cynical view, very cynical view of people. And he's the one character for whom nothing really changes from beginning to end, I feel like. In this film, literally nothing. His, his station in life, I mean, he's, he's found... Well, I take that back. He, he, oh, that's not that's, true. Yeah, that's not true. He does yeah. find... He, he finds uh, he finds happiness on the back end. But to, to Howard's point, though, the people and the way he perceives greed, whether it's, whether it's, it's gold, it happens to be gold in this film, but the ability for anybody, even decent people, as, as Howard suggests to be overtaken by it and all consumed by it, and they change. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I'd push back that I don't think he's cynical, at least from the film's I think so perspective. Yeah. I think he's, yeah, I think so he's quite... Um, now, all pessimists say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. But I think the, the film's <laughs> yeah. uh, perspective is he's not a pessimist, he's a realist, because he still has... He still goes with him. He has the experience of he's seen this happen. He admits that... It's something he himself might do. And so he just attempts to put, you know, that is get, get, you know, um, greedy and turn on people. So he attempts to just sort of put safeguards in place. And I, I don't know that he's 
again, I don't know that, that he's cynical so much as he's just like, look, we're going to tend toward this, so let's do our best to not go there. And he's the one who, not not to get here yet, but like actually understands the cosmic, ironic joke at the end of the film. For sure, yeah. Right. And it, I guess to TJ's point, like, I don't want to read too much into his demeanor and how that reflects his worldview necessarily, but he's a very pleasant guy and he really, really rolls to the punches. And like, sure. he may, he may acknowledge the fact that like, yeah, this could go wrong and we could turn on each other, but like, he's, he, he, I don't know. He doesn't like, he doesn't give off the vibe of a cynic. No. Even if he does like, I, acknowledge those. I would argue things. he's still a cynic. He's just an experienced cynic. Cause I mean, he's a realist. Sure. He's, 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 he's seen a lot because he's, he's got these stories and everybody, every all the guys sitting around when they we first meet Howard, they're all listening to Howard. And Dobbs is kind of, kind of, yeah. Well, the old guy's just spouting off whatever. He doesn't really agree with him to begin with. Uh, he thinks that it's not really about anybody being able to to suffer from um, this disease, this this festering kind of uh, greed that that will consume you. He thinks it's about the right person finding the gold it's all about the right people going out there and, and prospecting mm-hmm. but I, I we should say at this point because we're talking about howard howard is played by who tj uh that would be walter houston who is john houston's papa father of the writer director uh walter houston father of john houston uh who won an oscar for this role he did and he's great he, he's very good in the film it also it's a footnote for, and, and kind of a feather in the cap of john houston because John Houston, not only in this at this moment, becomes the first person to ever direct a parent to an Oscar win, but it's part one of what will be a two-part accomplishment in Houston's career. Because at the back end of his career, he directs his daughter Angelica to an Oscar win, mm. and to this day is the only person oh. to have directed two family members to acting is that wins. Prezi's honor. Yep, uh-huh. Prezi, 1985's okay, Prezi's honor, honor, which yeah. we will talk about once we, whenever we get around to 1985. It Which is our picture next. <laughs> oh, no, that's the year I chose next. Wait, really? Yes. I'm, no, oh, I'm serious. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, well, then okay, cool. it'll be coming up sooner. Stay tuned yeah, for a, that. A Houston connection. I didn't do that on purpose. So real quick, I want to say that uh, before we move off, William, well, I'm sorry, Walter Houston, he did not know Spanish. And he has to speak Spanish in this in like a number of scenes. And I read that uh, John Houston just like hired a Mexican gentleman to read Walter Houston's lines to him over and over again so he could just like memorize them phonetically. And uh he sounds great. It I is think. you you would be you would be totally forgiven for thinking that Walter Houston understands Spanish because not only does he speak it fairly well in the film, of the three the three guys in the film, he's the one who's translating for all of them. He's mm-hmm. the only yeah. one of the three who's supposed to know Spanish. Again, the experienced old he's the wise yeah. grizzled prospector who's been out here forever. Real quick, did you guys watch this on HBO Max? I I did not. I watched uh, Criterion, my Criterion copy. Uh, TJ, what was the English subtitle like in your HBO Max? I didn't get any English subtitles. Any Spanish that was spoken, they just showed me the Spanish words in my closed captioning. They didn't t- they didn't translate it for me. Um, correct. I had the same thing. Yeah, and I okay. was kind of surprised by how much there's kind of an extensive there's, there's an extensive exchange between the Federalists and the Bandits later in the movie that like. Throughout the whole film, there's a lot of Spanish that isn't translated. Correct. Um, but a lot of times, Walter Houston will like translate it for Humphrey Bogart and Curtin. But like, there are scenes where it's just like a Mexican guy speaking to a Mexican guy, and there's no one there to translate to English. So, like, uh, Ken, on your Criterion Blu-ray, was that translated in English or was that just in Spanish? So I didn't actually. I didn't have a uh, 
I didn't have the subtitles on last night um, when I was watching it. I've watched it before with the subtitles on, and I don't believe. So no, even, it comes with, even with with with, it, with the subtitles off, does it just like just let the Spanish words fly by with not no English? If the, uh, if you don't actively turn on any subtitles, nothing comes up. They're just speaking in hmm, Spanish. Okay, there it is not like a, a foreign film where by default they they pop up for the English watcher, or the English viewer, English speaking viewer. Excuse me, but. Um, no, and to the, to his credit, I think Houston does that partially partially on purpose. He he's not really bothered by whether or not the audience can understand what everything is saying, even you, though he wrote the script. You can understand it though, like you can understand it based on like what happens and how people react. To well, that's what I mean. He he's not yeah. worried about you understanding what they're saying because he gives you all the context clues necessary to understand exactly what they're saying. There's there's a good uh, there's a good joke in there that I didn't understand until. A Spanish-speaking friend of mine explained it to me when, you know, the famous badges line, um, and then they have the watch, and he shoots the watch, and the guy holding the watch says, me la, and then they cut him off. Um, that saying goes, me llava la, la chingada, which translates like, oh, fuck me, or I'm fucked. Um and because it was, you know, cut there, it would basically be like, yippee Kaye, mother, and then, you know, cuts right. off. Uh, um, so they cut, they cut the curse word even though it was in a different language, yeah, basically? Yeah, okay. which I, I thought I like was pretty, pretty clever. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Real quick, we mentioned uh, that Walter Houston won an Oscar. Can, can you go through the Oscars for this movie real quick? Just to sure, cover it, that section. It's, surpri- it's surprising in the fact that this film, despite how, how celebrated it is after the fact, and despite how many wins it got, it got only four nominations. It won mm-hmm. three of those yeah. four, though. It, it did. It did. It close. It damn well. Three major clean. categories too. Yes. Not like three under the below the line categories. So we, three major categories. We started off this series talking about Hamlet, which we said won Best Picture, but mm-hmm. this is what took director for Houston. It took supporting actor for Walter and John Houston also won screenplay. So it took both director and screenplay as well as one of the acting awards. Is this? I think this is the first time that. Uh, Parent child won an Oscar in the same night. Is it the only time this happened? Uh, no, it's not the only time. Uh, oh, the uh, top, Paper Moon. I, yeah, Paper Moon. Tatum O'Neill and Ryan, I, no, Ryan O'Neill didn't win for that. No. Well, no, but um, but but Francis Ford Coppola and his father both won Oscars for Part Godfather Part Two because uh, Carmine did, did Carmine did uh, the music. What a nar- what a nepo baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the the whole Coppola clan is uh, that's the nepo baby family tree. Yes, yeah, no, no, I, I like how their work. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not dispersing I, any I, any Coppola on this podcast. I was also, the only one I will disparage is Sophia, but we've been there. But um, she, and hey, she but she has hey, an Oscar. Hey man, she's got some great movies. He, yeah. Do you know he named some of his wine Sophia? I saw it on the he's got, the shelf, and I was like, I oh what is? I bet that's bland and boring. <laughs> <laughs> now don't don't go after the don't go after the wine, TJ. I have yeah. I've 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 forgotten many a night thanks to to Francis's uh, wonderful wonderful wine uh, products. He actually I think names I think he's got products that named after all of it, both of his all of his kids. I think is there a Nicholas Cage wine? Because I would drink that. I don't think there's an I don't think there's a, a Nicholas. I would open two bottles of Nicolas Cage wine and then do a Stone Cold Steve Austin, just upending them both in my mouth at the same time. Um, I'm, other I'm, things, I'm going to take this cork off. <laughs> <laughs> um, other things about the Oscars. Um, so, like you said, it won supporting actor for Walter Houston and then screenplay for John Houston, director for John Houston. 
and then it lost Best Picture, which is only... I'm very surprised... We'll talk about this more in the 1948 recap episode, but I'm very surprised it's only had four nominations. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Also, but, real, but also, real quickly, just like by today's standard, if you told me Movie X is going to win Best Director and Best Screenplay and an Acting Award, I would go, well, there's your Best Picture winner. Yeah, right. I would say the exact same thing, yes. Uh, the other thing is, I didn't realize that these were... So John Huston won two Oscars for this. It's John Huston's only Oscar wins. Man was nominated 15 times Ball. in his career. He, for, I thought he won... Uh, didn't he win screenwriting for Maltese Falcon? He did not. Oh, wow. No. It is okay. a bit um, of context for those listening. Well, this I will shut my mouth. We've mentioned this... I We, we have mentioned this, uh, I think, in the Hamlet episode, in the first one. Uh, for this series at this time there's only one screenplay um, uh, category it's not no there's two there's two one's called best screenplay which is like kind of the adapted screenplay category and then there's also like a quote-unquote original screenplay category uh well there's best motion picture story which i guess qualify yeah which yeah that's that's true that's the original best motion motion picture story is the i think original category here and yeah, that's right. And then this is called best, best screenplay, which is which, a, 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 essentially like what do you what existing source material you're taking and then making it into screenplay form, which is what we'll later be called best adapted screenplay. Right. Yeah. So I do apologize. It's it's just that there's that's it for some reason that they decided that they were going to completely separate the two by name. Um, mm-hmm. That that said, uh, it is shocking as you, to your point that this film. Doesn't win Best Picture despite its clearly the support it had among the Academy, and the fact that it, it's only got those nominations. That's it. Those four nominations pop up. There's nothing for for score, which I actually quite like in this film. Nothing for cinematography. Yeah, nothing for black and white cinematography at this time. Uh, cinematography shot by Ted McCord, who also shot Johnny Belinda uh, elsewhere. Discussed oh, in this podcast series for yeah, which for which McCord sure. is nominated. Yeah, for which he was nominated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he would later shoot uh, East of Eden with Leah Kazan, and he also shot The Sound of Music with Robert Wise. So, wow. uh, Ted McCord, he's out here. Yeah. Uh, this is not, yeah, this is definitely the one I'd have chosen to nominate him for over Johnny Belinda. Um, but th- that's I will say is. that this this did win Best Picture at the Golden Globe Awards. This was three for three at the Golden Globes Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor. So, um, the Globe success translated in two of its three wins, but it did not translate in Best Picture. You mentioned the the Max Steiner score. Um, that's one that, despite me having not seen this film in a long time, immediately came back to me once, like the titles came on, and then there's certain like light motifs throughout, dun, 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 where I was just like, oh yeah, you know, it's I, fantastic. Um, it really, yeah. it really does. Uh, and I mean, then something happens. Dun, 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 dun. To 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 its credit, I think that is where we were talking earlier. It has a lot of it has a lot of the elements of a western picture. Uh, Steiner's score definitely fits, I think, more into the western genre. Um, we see this kind of the, not only the sound but the use of the music and the score throughout the film. I think plays more as a western. That said, it is one of those scores that I I. Every time I hear it, I love it. Particularly when I'm watching this movie, it fits so perfectly with it. Um, so I'm a little surprised it's not. It's not. It wasn't nominated. Um, Why don't you think this is a western, Ken? I, I, I think it's. I, I said I, I think it is a western, but it's not pure western. This isn't a traditional western in the sense that others might be. Um, 
I think it hits see, on a it lot. Has... Of, I think it hits on a lot of the elements. Yeah, it's guys in like kind of a lawless land to an extent, right? And where there's uh, what law enforcement exists is like maybe not like completely in the up and up. It's like very swift justice when they execute justice. Um, uh, and there's bandits, and there's uh, again like a lawlessness probably overpowers whatever lawfulness there is, which is a very Western idea. I think that's all present, but I think the film, I think the focal point of the film is more broad than, than what we normally see in a Western. It's, this film strikes me more like uh, a film we talked about in the last series with Josh, which Josh, I know you really want to talk about for this film, but There Will Be Blood, which when that came out the same year as No Country for Old Men, No Country is more clearly the Western then I think there will be blood. Those are both neo westerns, I would say. Though neo, yeah, neo westerns. You're right. No, no country more so than there will be blood. Right. But like they both have some hallmarks. Because another another hallmark is like the rugged individualism that's like present in westerns and also film noir. That's the the Hollywood genres book that I just pulled out. Like talks about rugged individualism in multiple genres. But like one of them is the western and how and like these are three men apart, kind of going on their own. And Daniel Plainview for certain goes on his own. And like kind of that whole movie is about him being a singular entity and not getting along with the people. But like, I don't know. I think that's certainly part of the, the genre, the, the frontier. Um, I think maybe if I can try to tune Ken's point a bit, a lot of the Westerns that we see in the like golden age Westerns, which is going to come about six years after this film, um, have a lot more to do with man's place in society um, the conflict there is between individual and society and a lot of times and I think in Treasure of the Sierra Madre it's more akin and possibly because it has an older uh, source with the novel um, it, it's more akin to like American naturalism and rather than being about sure. man and society it's a lot about man versus nature and in this case it's his own nature but also there's a lot focused there on just the elements and the way that the elements wear you down. And you think about the way that the the film ends, that there's kind of an indifference of the land toward value that's placed on something by other people. And the fact that it can also be uh, the gold and the sand can be like seemingly interchangeable. It's you, mm. you, you get a sense looking at those large vistas near the end that it's like the humans gained and lost everything and the the land wasn't bothered. I think it's interesting that it's not set in America, that it's set in Mexico, and it but it is Americans kind of taking resources from a land that's not their own. You know, um, I don't know if that was on John Houston's mind or on B. Travern's mind, whoever th- this novelist was. But uh, I think that's interesting. Ah, that's on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting to me in twenty twenty three. Uh, Americans in Mexico not stealing resources, but like, you know, taking something from the ground and getting rich from it. Yeah, this is, well, it, it I guess speaks to, the, if we're going to dive into the history of America at the time, this is definitely post-gold rush. We are we are past the point at which America has, has prospected as much gold as they can get out of the Western U.S. We know where all the hotspots are by then. People have gone up to the Yukon. People have gone up to Alaska. The gold rush by 1925, when this film is set, uh, the gold rush north of the, the Rio Grande uh, 
has we we've worked it out it, it, the gold we know where the gold is if at any if anything at this point north of the rio grande it's all about oil so those who are wanting to prospect gold are having to go elsewhere and yes the next stop is well we've done we, we've prospected as much as we can of the u.s let's see what uh what, what are, what's down in mexico and to that point it it's i'm not sure i'm i'm totally comfortable with this depiction in fact, I'm not really comfortable with the depiction, but the bandits don't seem to think at all about the possibility that these guys are out here looking for gold. Uh, we talk about at the end, TJ was referencing the fact that at the end that the, the, the wind has taken back the, the gold, right? We were left with the image of, of uh, them having not gained anything and the gold and, and the bags are just kind of settled back into the, the desert. Um, this kind of sense that yeah, the, the the locals don't seem to care, even though it's clear all of these gringos are wandering around because they think there's gold in the mountains, or they know that there's gold in the mountains, and that's what they're after. But when the bandits meet up with Dobbs by, at the end, uh, they care more about the pelts. They care more about well, his he, donkeys. Well, he claims that, like... He claims that the valuables he has on him is pelts, and not, he's hiding the gold from them. So, like, they just assume, okay, here's here's a guy with pelts. We'll just kill him and take his pelts and sell these. You know, well, they no, they they jump on the assumption that he, it's about the pelts, and he agrees with them because he kind of he, he kind of willingly goes, yeah, yeah, the pelt. You know, he's yes, it's about the pelts. He wants them to believe it's about the pelts. But after they after they've taken all of his stuff, they go through the bags and it's, they think it's just sand, so they dump it all out. They think it's sand to weigh down the pelts, right? So that the pelts are way more, and he can get a better price for him not realizing that that sand is actually gold right yeah and it doesn't it, it's it's so what's what's the point what's the point you're making you, you think the bandits are too stupid i'm saying yeah it suggests that the either they don't either they're they're not smart enough to be it suggests that the locals don't seem to know what these guys are doing here nobody's mm. figured it out these guys go into the mountains they come back and they they end up exchanging gold for cash or money um Usually, I assume they try to take it back to the U.S., but it's like, this isn't the first time. Howard's been out here a very long time looking for gold. Uh, so it, it's, it is a little, uh, it's a little frustrating in the fact that not, not the bandits, not the villagers, they're never, they're never a direct threat to, uh, the three, these three guys actually getting away with their gold. They're, the, the threat of the, of the bandits is obviously, their, their life and their shoes and their their guns and their bullets like the bandits are out for weapons and clothing more than they are gold and it just seems kind of it makes these the the locals seem short-sighted i guess again it, it, there's still real there's still a real threat though i mean i don't really care what the bandits are after or not like the point is they're a threat to our characters dobbs Curtin, no but it speaks howard can i think i think you have a point to a point there um one thing i'll say is i think the movie tries to set that up a little bit early on by having um, Curtin and Dobbs first think they find gold when it's just fool's gold, and then second, uh, you, you're dumber than donkeys. You wouldn't even know the stuff right beneath your feet. Um, and, and so it, it twice early sets up that uh, gold is not what it appears to be. Um, it actually, they, they even say it looks like sand, right? He's sifting it and he's like, well, I just thought it looks just like sand. And he's like, well, it hasn't been refined yet. So I, I hear your point that the locals probably, you would imagine they would know more about that, but the film does set up that it's, 
incredibly difficult to distinguish. No, no, I, I get that. It's just this idea of, as we were talking about, the kind of, in this case, it's not the Westerners, but the Northerners in this case, the, the, the folks from the more developed world coming in to this country that they think is or is is less less developed than where they're from and they're showing up because hey we know how to obtain and where to obtain this special resource that you guys have under your feet that you don't seem to be doing anything with and it it kind of feeds into the same notions when the europeans showed up to north america to begin with there they were also looking for gold and and all kinds of other resources that the indians weren't particularly uh, dabbling in at the time, it was more for them. Again, actually, about pelts and clothing and um, and food. Um, it's it's just kind of something that happens over time. The more expensive resources, the more valuable resources. When people get to a point where, hey, uh, our society is such that we value those things greater than the basics, suddenly we start searching the rest of the world outside of where of our homeland. Um, and try to try to take advantage of the locals because in this sense yeah that's what we're that's what we were talking about they're showing up to mexico to take the gold from from the land that uh they claim i mean they're very territorial about it too it's their it's their mountain it's their land while they're there dobbs has the freak out when cody shows up the gentleman from texas uh yeah they're territorial even though cody points out that it's you know it's just open land he can he can dig and prospect for gold wherever you'd like uh but they've laid claim to that that mountain or at least that section of that mountain and uh, they don't particularly care for him to be there let me ask you this uh tj do you like this movie what do you think of this movie give me your general take oh yeah i'm very fond of this movie um i think it's excellent i think it's very well crafted in the kind of classical sense of the way the characters are set up and kind of triangulated um i i recalled Almost, it, it, this isn't a perfect analogy, but almost the triangulation of characters we had in Jaws, where you had kind of the older, more experienced guy, um, the kind of buttoned up, buttoned up one, and then the the head and the heart, yeah, two poles, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a that's... well, we we assigned roles for Jaws, so who among the three of us would be Howard, Dobbs, and Curtin? Oh. <laughs> I mean, I think Ken is Howard, don't you think? Oh, am I? <laughs> am I? Um, <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> I don't know, Josh. Are you feeling greedy or are you feeling bland? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We don't have to sign roles. Um, uh, sorry, just continue your yeah, thought. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> a lot of the things that we've mentioned as well, just with um, a, lot of, a lot of the themes that the film is hitting on, and the way that elements of the lighting and the staging bring those things out um i think it's pretty economical with the storytelling um i think houston that was the thing houston did where houston was not extremely flashy with a lot of the directing techniques he did but he was really quite economical that that was something noted by paul thomas anderson we'll get into the we'll get into the there will be blood of it all soon but like that's something pta definitely noted was the Simplicity may be the wrong word, but like this, the straightforwardness of the storytelling. Yeah, yeah. And how that was like a breath of fresh air, kind of. And I really like that last image of the dust and the sand blowing away in there. It's kind of indistinguishable. I think that's more effective, actually, in black and white. Absolutely. Yes. They're indistinguishable, but then also that the bag with the holes in it is then hung up on a cactus. This, this thing that grows and thrives in nature, not needing 
much water like the men do with its its needles its defenses is the thing that tore through what the men were using to try to extract natural resources for their own benefit um so that last image i think very much hits home that it's man versus nature like you said earlier and then that that yeah. nature wins and in the end it's just this yeah. kind of big cosmic joke um, and, and the wind the wind itself nature again yeah. kind of just is the cosmic joke that's that's a really good point tj yeah and i want to say real quick uh <laughs> my my go-to reference for like a maniacal laughter in a movie has been recently bob de niro and kate fear walter houston at the end of treasure sierra madre gives bob de niro and kate fear a real run for his money in terms of like a crazy manic laughter guy yeah <laughs> well and humphrey bogart's got a good one about an hour into it as well um yeah or I think it's when he and Curtin are deciding who's going to, like, they're going to stay up watching each other with their guns. Um, can I, I want to ask you guys something, because this actually bumped me on this viewing. This movie's read a lot as a pretty big statement about, like, human nature's capacity for greed or the American mm-hmm. capacity yeah. for greed, something sure. like that. Can such a grand statement adequately or accurately be extracted from the film when it's placed on a character like Dobbs, who's already pretty much of a son of a bitch at the beginning yeah. of the movie. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, where, and, and you know, I mean, there's a similar thing there with Daniel Plainview, right? Where it's not really this like, he was just a good guy and then he became a bad guy. It's, you were kind of a, you were a bum who turned into a villain. Um, yeah. And I don't know, what, what what do you guys think about that? I agree with you that like, I, I think that it's it's an interesting investigation to what greed can do to people and how quickly people can turn on each other and for what reasons but i mean to your point i'm not sure how sweeping that that observation can be when you do apply to a guy like dobbs i'm I'm just repeating exactly what you just said back to you but yeah i agree like dobbs is a a flawed character from the beginning and he's not a guy that was it was very easy for him to turn sour he was just like one or two clicks away from becoming what he ultimately became you know this uh a bum he became a villain that's exact that's a really good way to put it yeah it's interesting to me something that Howard says uh, late in the film after after Dobbs has been killed by the the bandits. He makes the suggestion. Actually, no. Yeah, it's actually after he's been killed by the bandits. We they don't know that yet. He's with uh, Curtin. It's about that same time um, after after Curtin has managed to get away from Dobbs, who shot him, and Curtin has been recovered by the villagers. Howard tells him that Dobbs is about as honest as the next fellow, or almost. The idea, I think, being that even in the beginning, Dobbs, yeah, was probably tougher around the edges. Um, and, and yeah, we call him a bit of an asshole or a bit of a dick in, in 21st century parlance. Uh, he's not, he's not the type of guy you want to really want to be friends with long term. Um, that said, he's not particularly evil. There's nothing particularly outstanding in his, his, his badness. True, true. But in contrast to the other two guys, the film also sets up, when they're like, well, what are you going to do with your 25 grand? And he's like, I'm going to retire. What are you going to do with your 25 grand? I'm going to grow a peach farm. What are you going to do with yours? Basically, be Jordan Belfort and be a fucking yeah. douchebag. But I'm going to order everything on the menu and send it back, even if it's wrong, just because. And then and I'm going to go get the whores. Yeah. Like, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. Like, he's I mean, food and whores. That is and, then yeah, did exactly. you, and then did you see the first time they're, they're measuring the gold out? And they cut Humphrey Bogart's face, and he wants to fuck that gold. Like, <laughs> so that's the thing, though. It, the exposition in those scenes, he becomes in, it, the greed increasingly becomes uh, visibly at the forefront of his thinking because early on, when they're still in Tampico, 
uh, he agrees with Howard. Like the mistake people make is is not knowing when enough is enough. Because he, he seems to agree with that. He verbalizes it, which is why he's suggesting it's all about the right people going out and finding it. And the problem is, as they go out there, Dobbs is the one who falls directly into the 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 the, uh, the fall trap. Yeah, the trap yep. that Howard has warned us of at the beginning of the movie. And I, and I think that's one of the more interesting points this movie makes about because you can view it as this movie is about greed and it's about how like people like money and they'll do anything for money sort of thing. I think there's a more interesting, deeper point, which is that value gets affixed to that money based on how we judge the value of like human labor hours. Um, where, uh, Howard says at some point, like, oh, why is it valuable? It's valuable because out of a thousand men, one's going to find it and you take the other 999 and you multiply all their, you know, so it's like what 60,000 hours or whatever for like one ounce of gold. And that's why it's so expensive. And he says basically like nature doesn't give a hoot about the gold. It's just, you know, something, um, but there's all this labor put into it. So when Dobbs says that at the beginning that, oh yeah, you know, it's just people taking more than they would want. Well, that's easy for you to say when you've, n- you haven't picked up an ax yet, Yeah, you know? A- and then he goes out there and, right away is basically like this shit's too hard let's go home (laughs) yeah he's the first one to want to give up i think that that's why i think the opening like 15 minutes is really effective and really necessary to see to see dobbs really struggle and beg for change so he can eat and you know barely able to get a doesn't eat with it (laughs) He, he does though he eats a few times my point is though like seeing him struggle that hard uh and like really really be down on his luck and and curtain as well and like they they do a a really hard labor job then don't get paid for it and they got to beat up a guy in order to get paid for their labor seeing that like to to prime you with that before they go up into the mountain i think is very interesting and like his conversation where he as you guys just said he says i would know when enough is enough like you know five grand ten grand then i'm out i believe him because he is struggling so hard and like that would be a life-changing amount of money based on what we've seen him do so far and like but, like, you know, as soon as he gets his hands on five grand worth of gold, like, obviously, he wants to make 50, 75, 100 at that point. So, like, he, to your point, Ken, falls, in your own tra- falls into his own yep. trap. But I think I think that opening is important because at first, I believe him, you know? Right. Well, he I believe he first. even covers, he basically covers for Curtin. When, when he wins the lottery ticket, he's like, well, I'm going to put this towards the three of us getting the equipment necessary. There's that sweet sugar papa likes. <laughs> exactly. And it's not until later that they're at, once they're out there, they found some gold and they're, they're talking about splitting it and everything. He gets rather defensive and he point blank tells Curtin, well, I put up more of the, I put up more of the, uh, the capital basically for this, this, this trip and this journey that we're on. So he should theoretically get more and, you know, and basically forces Curtin into admitting, well, yeah, I'm going to, I'll pay you back. Fine. Like I was always going to pay you back. He's like, oh yeah, 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 sure you are. Yep. He's, becoming uh yeah he's becoming a victim of the very thing howard warned them of in the beginning and to your to your point i think tj what you were saying is yeah he's clearly of the three of them the one most likely to fall into that trap from what we see early on in the film um howard obviously is experienced enough that he knows he, he knows when he sees it he can spot it and he's done this often enough um Although it does, it does raise a question. Howard's so genial and so likable. There's a point at which they're talking about in the beginning and they're first agreeing to go out there. 
he's eyeing Dobbs in particular very closely. Um, when he and Curtin are, are striking the deal and shaking hands, I don't know if you picked up on that. He, he wants to sleep with or, him. I think. What? He wants to sleep with him. I'm <laughs> that's, kidding. That's that's yeah. a, that's, that's a deep not read. actually. I don't. I don't think that's in that. But he's not smiling or grinning, even though they've effectively just agreed to a partnership between the three of them. He seems incredibly wary, and his eyes are particularly fixated on on Dobbs. So. It, it does make me wonder whether he sees something ahead of time and from the start in Dobbs. Again, he's got experience. Maybe he's just not saying it, that Dobbs has something that is going to make him more susceptible to the greed. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys picked up on that. Uh, it's something that I've noticed the last few times in particular. The guy just, Walter Houston's sitting there and he's not smiling or grinning and his eyes just kind of flick up and thin a little bit as he stares at Dobbs as they shake hands. What I want to say is that another thing that comes back from the opening 15 minutes that like, I think, you know, uh, Dobbs kind of Dobbs kind of becoming what he's, you know, warned against uh, is the guy that shortchanges them for their labor in the opening 15 minutes. Uh, and again, Curtin and Dobbs track that guy down when he ends up stiffing them for their labor and they beat the crap out of him and take their what's owed to them. But then, you know, what, an hour later, um, Dobbs proposes to Curtin that they run off with Howard Cher. And basically, he becomes the guy that he beat the crap out of an hour ago and wants to shortchange Howard out of out of his labor and his, uh, his guidance. And he's also the first one that is like, hey, we should kill Cody. Yes. Yeah. He's yeah. The, and, and Cody was not asking for much. Like, if you think about it, he's like, I just want what we make from here on out. Right. No, he's being very reasonable. I mean, yeah. he's. So the fact that he follows, he, he decides to follow Curtin back up into the mountains, which is pretty ballsy. I mean, oh, yeah. You're, suspect, oh, yeah. you're suspecting that this guy is got a, uh, probably going to meet up with somebody else, and they're prospecting for gold. And he seems to not want to bring this guy along. He doesn't want him around. But Cody still decided to go ahead and go out there anyway because he's, as we learn from the letter sent, we learn later after after Cody is killed by the bandits, we learn from the letter from his wife, obviously, that this is his last attempt to, to recover something from these trips out to look for gold before he goes home to Texas for the last time. And so... Yeah, he's just, you know what? I'm going to go follow the, the this American. Let's find out what happens. And he lays out a pretty good argument. The fact that their options are to kill him, to let him go, or to let him team up with them. If they kill him, they become murderers, obviously. And, and most likely, unless they all do it together, one of them is the one more likely to kill. And he's beholden to the other two. Interesting point. If they did all do it together, that constitutes a firing squad, which they, which is also kind of a point in the movie as well when they talk about the swiftness of mexican justice and putting the bandits to the firing squad if they let him go he's going to go back to the the authorities and he can actually he suggests that based on the the, the law or the rules he can he can claim 25 percent of whatever is recovered by the authorities if they report if he reports them so he can actually get some kind of a prize or a reward for reporting these three or they let him join, and he won't. He won't ask for anything they've already recovered or already prospected. He just wants a, you know, his share of whatever they find thereafter. It's not that unreasonable, but of course, back to Howard's point earlier, the ideal number is three, and it does start to raise questions. Okay, suddenly we've got this fourth guy in here. What happens if more show up? 
And that's the only reason I think Howard ends up going along with the other two. I mean, he's outvoted. There's three of them and he is outvoted. But his preference is to, he, he doesn't, and I shouldn't say preference. He wants to cut him in. He doesn't seem to mind the idea of him joining them going forward. Yeah. But I think also, you know, Dobbs, Dobbs presenting with, presented with the conundrum of what do we do now? There's another person with his handout. Him being presented with that, I think arguably kind of flips a switch in him. And that might be what leads him to turn on Curtin and Howard later in the movie, you know? Like him him considering the possibility of having to share what this gold with other with another person, even though he's already like in concept agreed to share it with two other people. Yep. The introduction of sharing it with more people like kind of flips a switch him like, no, I don't want to share this with anybody. Well, we, you know? We've seen the levels. We've seen the levels, right? They go out as partners, but after they're out there, Dobbs is the one who's insistent, most insistent about let's split up the gold we find as we go along. So we are each man is responsible. Yeah, rather than split up the money later on, let's split up the gold now. And then yeah. he's paranoid about his stash because he's mm-hmm. – to the point there's that fantastic evening scene. He wakes up and Howard – Howard, let's be honest. Howard probably went out to, to use the – to go to the bathroom. Because like, he's old and old people have to exactly. piss several times in the night. Howard's not – Howard's his, prostate. Yes, yeah. exactly. He, he's not <laughs> a sleeping bag. Do you burn when you cath? <laughs> <laughs> This is... Howard was the original catheter cowboy. Yes, yes, exactly. Not the first time the catheter cowboy has been brought up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it won't be the last. <laughs> Listen to the No Country for Old Men episode. <laughs> this, this is the kind of podcast we are bringing you. Quality. It's, nothing beats it. And there's Dobbs freaks out. He's becoming so paranoid even at that point. He thinks Howard's out looking for his stash. He comes, of course... He goes out. He trying. To, I don't know if does he go to check on his stash or I think does he actually move it. I think he just checks on it at that evening. I think he just checks on. But it, when yeah. he comes back, of course, because of but all they're, the, they're, a, they're a revolving door. Yes, because yeah. because uh, of the Curtin other two Howard, getting up. <laughs> Howard comes back. It's his sleeping bag that wakes up Curtin. Curtin realizes they've both been up, and so he goes, "Oh well." He sees that Dobbs has gone out to check, so he'll go out and check. But Dobbs is the one who's most paranoid about them coming up, who finding his stash, to the point that he freaks out. And thinks that the other two are like conspiring against him. And that snowballs into what we eventually get of him deciding, I'm just going to cut out the other two altogether. Uh, Ken, I think I know the answer. And I'm, I, I'm trying to just like get this question asked. Sorry, I asked TJ. Do you, what, what do you think of this? Do you like this? I love this movie. Yeah. Okay. I figured. Yeah. If, you, if you recall, yeah. it was number 76 on Ken's top 100. Yes, Not that I talked. have that memorized. I just was... you know I don't recall. Yeah, you know I don't recall that. Yeah. It wasn't my yeah. I did have it on my top 100 uh, films, my personal list. Um, yeah, I do love this film. I've watched it several times. Uh, I, I, I'm ever fascinated by the characters. Even Dobbs. Dobbs is, I think, of it's just he's an awesome, awesome character. Not in the, the sense that he's good, but between Bogart's performance, which I actually really like, and Houston's writing. Um, I, I, yeah, I, there's not, there's not a whole lot about this film I don't like. Again, I just, there's that kind of undertone regarding the fact that the Mexicans don't seem to be all that aware or interested in, in the whole prospecting business, even though I don't believe by this point they would be that ignorant of what gold looks like in its, in its immediate natural state. I feel like somebody would, particularly bandits who are out there in the hills. You can't tell me the bandits haven't come across prospectors before. This is literally what they're doing. Um, they're going out robbing people. So other than that, <laughs> I have no other problems with this movie, really. Josh, what do you think? 
of this movie. I think that it's safe to say that of the three of us, I have the most modern sensibilities where uh, I think you two respond more to movies made before like 1970, more so than I do. Much as I try to appreciate older movies, as I fancy myself a serious film person, sometimes they don't always click with me the way they click with you guys. Uh, This fucking rips. This movie definitely clicks with me. This was really good. And part of that, I think, is... Uh, as we've mentioned before on this podcast, in our episode, like I've seen There Will Be Blood 20, 30 times. I'm extremely fond of that movie. And Ken, you definitely talked about it in our There Will Be Blood episode, how much Treasure of the Madre influenced Paul Thomas Anderson. But like, I don't think I really realized how much it influenced Tom- Paul Thomas Anderson. Like there, there are sequences watching this from like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Oh, okay. There it is again. Uh, first of all, there's a Derek. Like in the opening 15 minutes when they work for that guy that shortchanged them, they are working on a Derek much like, and um, again, much like There Will Be Blood, they're working for somebody else on a Derek in like the first first 15 minutes and then they eventually start working for themselves and start making real money for themselves. Uh, um, the corrupting influence of greed, or maybe it's not even corrupting, maybe it's just revealing what was already there in the first place in the case of Dobbs and Daniel Plainview. Um, I think you mentioned in your, uh, in the There Will Be Blood episode, Ken, that Paul Thomas Anderson watched this every day while writing the script for The Old Blood. Uh, I couldn't find that information online, but he definitely said that he watched it while he fell asleep for a full week straight so that it could like permeate into his brain. And uh, apparently it helped him get through some writer's block uh, for The Old Blood. Uh, real quick, here's, here's a quote I found from Paul Thomas Anderson talking at a uh, DGA event in 2007. So around the time The Old Blood came out, um, talking about Treasure of Sierra Madre, quote, The films I love the most are, for the most part, very traditional in their structure. So when I was getting ready to make The Old Blood, I put on Sierra Madre before going to sleep at night for a week, just trying to get it to soak into my head and help me approach storytelling in a more old-fashioned way. I suppose I kept looking at it as a film I wished I knew how to make. So both the, the structure and the storytelling style is a major influence, if not a template, for The Will Be Blood. And... um. I don't know. I definitely see that, you know, and uh, I don't know. This movie, it really works for me. I thought this was awesome. This is like one of the better movies in the 40s I've seen. Granted, it's not that many, but this rips. And it's also got, it benefits from Walter Houston doing uh, probably the most iconic prospector, old tiny prospector dance in any movie. <laughs> when yeah, they, him and, uh, him and that, Stinky Pete from Toy yes, Story exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly, Is that a long list? <laughs> yes, oh. that's exactly. There's no doubt if you watch Toy Story 2, uh, <laughs> Stinky Pete is slightly, slightly modeled after uh, Walter Houston's character of Howard. He's just obviously not as evil as Stinky Pete, but uh, <laughs> Houston's performance is fantastic in the movie. As I'm talking about how much I like this, despite having more modern sensibilities than you two, I guess I should go into Josh's populist corner. And uh, I think that's the consensus, honestly, that even people with modern sensibilities think that Treasure of Sierra Madre still rips. Uh, because on Letterboxd, this has a 4.2 out of 5, which is very, very good. That's good enough to be number 222 on the Letterboxd Top 250, huh. if that means anything to you. Um, I did notice, though, that it has pretty few ratings like a lot lower than other movies that i would put in like the same caliber as this like uh this has forty four thousand ratings in letterboxd and just to put that in perspective the godfather has like seven hundred seventy thousand compared to forty four thousand. uh the red shoes has 40 has fifty four thousand. so the red shoes has 
like you know, a, almost a quarter more ratings than Treasure 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 of the Sierra Madre. That's got to be partially the Marty effect, right? I, I it has to be. It absolutely has to be. But um, so I guess what I, what I'm saying is like it's it's very well regarded on Letterbox, but like it seems a little more underseen than I would have thought based on its reputation, I guess. So that's where we're at with Letterboxd. Um, and I also want to say that it was put into the National Film Registry in the second year of the National Film Registry's uh, existence for the Library of Congress. 89 was the first year, 1990 was the second year. So like, I think, was there 25 movies in, in 1989, then another 25 in 1990? That sounds I about say. right. So, like, yeah, there were a couple dozen so, like, they were adding at a time. So because it was this in the second year, it was among the 50 movies from the first century of movie making that the Library of Congress deemed culturally, aesthetically, culturally, aesthetically, artistically significant. Um, so, like, you know, one, one of the 50 most important movies, according to the Library of Congress, from the first 100, 100 years of movies. And just to put that in perspective, uh, the first year, the inaugural year, had things like Casablanca, Susan Cain, Dr. Strangelove, Gone with the Wind, On the Waterfront, Wizard of Oz, and Star Wars. So that was like among the 25 most important culturally aesthetic movies, according to the Library of Congress. And then the second year, so the same year as Sierra Madre, uh, was things like It's a Wonderful Life, The Godfather, All But Eve, Raging Bull, Rebel Without a Cause, and Fantasia. So the Treasure of Sierra Madre is like in league with those kinds of things in terms of um, cultural significance, I guess. And to your point, it is, it, it's a film that I think a lot of people are aware of, but I'm not sure how many people, Letterboxd seems to reflect that, how many people have actually watched it. It might be one of the more underappreciated. I'll tell you what, as far as awareness goes, uh, I think you guys mentioned that you guys first became aware of it around high school. I'm sure that's when I first heard of it too, because it's on the AFI list. And uh, the AFI list was something that I think all three of us probably uh, printed out when we were 16, 17 and wanted to try to burn through. Uh, it was number 30 on the 1997 list and then number 38 on the 2007 list. Uh, and that, just for context, that's the AFI, American Film Institute, top 100 American movies ever made, which is a list that I think is pretty well regarded, uh, personally. It also was on the uh, the the quotes. It's in the movie. The badges quote yeah, yeah. is so, in the AFI yeah, quotes well, list. It, so the AFI also has like a few other like sub lists. Like uh, it's also on the hundred years, hundred thrills list. So like among, I guess, thrilling movies, it's number 67, which is interesting. This is a shout out while we're having this conversation. People of a certain age will remember when once a year, I can't remember if it was CBS or whoever would air, it would be an evening special, an AFI evening special, where each year they did one of these. And they'd run through them and they you had like Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and Coppola and Tom Hanks. And all of these people would be commenting on this list of a hundred films or a hundred quotes or actors or whatever. And, and I used to exciting. record them off the TV uh, onto VHS. I did like as well. Some sort nice. of fucking nice. serial killer. I did or something. as well. Yeah, it was. It was like, yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. Can I read a few of the one star reviews from Letterboxd? Let, give me one second. We can get to that. Give me. Uh, so it's on the hundred years, hundred thrills list, number sixty-seven. And also, Ken, as you just said, it was on the hundred years, hundred quotes list. With the very famous quote, badges, we ain't got no badges, we don't need no badges, I don't have to show you any stinking badges, as kind of alluded in the opening. That was number 36 on the AFI's Top 100 Best Quotes from American Movies. It is, it is infamously one of so years the ago. most misquoted quotes from film as well, because admittedly it's, it's long and it's repetitive to a degree, but people often get it slightly off they usually i think i've heard i've heard we don't need no stinking yes, badges correct but he never actually says we don't need no stinking badges right. um 
I think like Rugrats made a reference to that. That's probably the first time I heard it. I think Phil <laughs> Deville probably said that There's at some a, point. There or, is or some version of it. If I recall correctly, there is a Rugrats episode that is. Uh, there's a few Rugrats episodes that are somewhat Western themed, and they make references to like High Noon and and this and uh, Searchers and Stage. There's Coach. also a There's also a Rugrats episode that I, this went way over my head when I first saw it. There is a Maltese Falcon. Uh, Rugrats episode where the the um the MacGuffin is not a statue of a falcon but is actually a, bo- a bag of malted milk balls. So the Maltese is what they're all after is the Maltese, which I thought was very very clever in hindsight now that I've seen the that's Maltese like, falcon. That's a good one, but it's very good. Yeah, there is also it's on the Criterion it's on the Criterion set for this movie. There is uh, one of the special features, a Looney Tunes cartoon in which Bugs is the main character for that particular cartoon, and he stumbles upon Humphrey Bogart as Dobbs out in the desert. Bugs stumbles upon him out in the desert, and he's uh it's he's basically a cartoon version of Fred C. Dobbs begging for money from Bugs Bunny. And Bugs more or less Shoes him off because suggesting that he can't be trusted with it. Last entry in Populous Corner, uh, outside of all the cultural references that like cartoons make to this movie that I probably saw a lot as a kid. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, Sam Raimi, and Vince Gilligan, and obviously Paul Thomas Anderson, all listed among their favorite movies. And like Vince Gilligan said that Dobbs was kind of a, a bit of a template for Walter White in Breaking Bad. Um, yeah, but uh, I think Sam Raimi said this is like his actual favorite movie. I think Kubrick said this was in his top five um so like a lot of a lot of people whose work i really enjoy really like this movie and like it, it makes sense you know um tj one star letterbox reviews what do you got racist plays more like a serialized novel heavy-handed on much of the imagery it's fun to watch bogart go joker mode I, that doesn't sound like a one-star review to me. That sounds like a fairly positive review, honestly. Mine's the racist part. It says a lot about this person that their reference for cinematic depictions of madness is just Joker mode. Um, yes, that's actually, yeah, that's very <laughs> telling. Yeah, you're right. The burros made for more complex characters than Bogart. I had to watch this in two separate sittings because I found myself incredibly bored. This person actually makes an interesting point here. I only watched this movie because many articles likened Spike Lee's to Five Bloods to his take on this film. That's an interesting connection. It is, I, yeah. I greatly enjoyed to Five Bloods. I love Humphrey Bogart, but the racist undertones that were the base of this movie ruined it. That's, it's interesting because, to make it clear, I don't think the film is... is I don't think the racism is that... Is that Obvious to make to make it clear, I'm not taking any of these serious as like needing us to. No, I no, just no. find these really amusing. No, but we did. It's interesting to the to my point earlier. I do catch some undertones that kind of make me feel uncomfortable, but I don't think in any way Houston was intending it. Because for uh, there's no question that there is a similarity between both Dobbs and any prospect or any American or or whatever other nationality coming and looking for gold, what greed can do to them. There is a similarity between them and the bandits. And at the same time, there is, there is something kind of reaffirming about humanity in what we see in the villagers, both the villagers. You're stooping stooping to argue with morons. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just simply laying out the fact that I think to their point, uh, there there are under there are certain things that can be taken as racist. It's just not overwhelming, and it's not it doesn't really impact most of the film. I I have two more. 
It's just a boring film. Everything that is supposed to happen happens. I don't and, understand the criticism. And then here's the last one. This one's my favorite. Apparently, this movie and pornography remain as major influences on Paul Thomas Anderson. And I guess that makes sense because the one thing <laughs> they have in common is they're both pointless. <laughs> <laughs> really coming for PTA's throat there. Coming for Booking Nights and There Will Be Blood. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, uh, what else do we want to say about Treasure of the Sierra Madre? I know. Tita, you wanted to recast this. I thought that'd be fun. Anything else you want to do besides that before we wrap up? No. Um, I, a little bit about the recasting thing. I am in no way suggesting this movie should be remade or that it was poorly cast. Just for some weird reason as I was watching it, I was just like, who would play these roles now? No, well, think- because to your point, to point that you said earlier, like they are very well triangulated and like pretty well defined in their characterization and pretty efficiently. So like, I think it is fun to think about like who's the modern day Dobbs and not saying who's the modern day Bogart but who's the modern day Dobbs who's the modern day Curtin who's the modern day Howard you know I think that's a fun exercise I think or who could pull it pull it off because I think all three of us agree and and anybody uh, anybody who loves film generally would agree with this I hope but remakes just to be remade is is pointless that's a futile exercise but every once in a while it doesn't mean that there isn't source material in this case the 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 novel perhaps or the storyline it could be adapted you could see I could see somebody attempting to remake this I mean we've we've already actually referenced a Danny Boyle movie and not only that but heavy inspiration on there will be blood on breaking bad this this story and some of the elements in this movie clearly pop up again and again so i don't think it's completely a futile exercise it's kind of a a fun dip into uh an alternate world of so ken who do you got so i'll start off with Curtin because the first thing that popped in my head when thinking about bob Curtin and how we might recast um i kept coming up with jesse plemons it's just the Mm. First guy I thought I, like that. I just That's a really good idea. Yeah. Jesse Plemons. And then would you drop Cumberbatch in there to call him Fat Boy the whole time? <laughs> I, would, I would not. I did not have Fat So. I did not have Cumberbatch uh, in there. Um, I, I had uh, Jesse Plemons for Dobbs. Uh, my preference is Oscar Isaac. I think Oscar Isaac could pull mm. off a really good Fred C. Dobbs. Have you seen Triple Frontier? I have not. That's another. That's a one where a team of guys go into like you know uh, enemy territory, like a, a foreign nation, and basically steal a bunch of gold from drug dealers, or steal a bunch of money from drug dealers, and then try to get out. So there is like a little bit of Treasure of Sierra Madre, the spirit of that movie in uh, Triple Frontier, which is like a a dumb action movie that I actually really like. So uh, recommend. But Oscar Isaac is a good pick. I like that. Yeah. For Howard, I came up with a couple of names. The first one was more obvious to me, um, particularly given what we've talked about in the last series. Tommy Lee Jones popped into my head. Um, mm. it, it just that's it's the first one that popped into my head, but the more interesting one that I Howard's too cheery for Timely well, Jones. I feel like. so. This is the, the one I I actually ultimately would prefer to see. I think it would be interesting. Uh, would be Michael Keaton. Hmm, mm, that's a really good one. Yeah, I'd like to see. I yeah, I think yeah. I think he would play. He's got the he's got the sweetness, but also like the savviness. Yeah, a little grizzled. Sure. Let him let him grow a bit of more beard, and uh, yeah, I could. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can see a grizzled Michael Keaton. TJ? So Jesse Plemons, Oscar Isaac, and Michael Keaton. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Great call. Uh, so mine, now I'll have to say I, I went ahead and just assumed that they're all going to stay as white guys. Um, and that we weren't like going to Ghostbusters this or anything. So that means that my 
prospector original choice of Wanda Sykes had to be stricken from the record. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, and then I was going to have Dobbs be Larry David. I'm kidding. Um, okay, so I I thought uh, for Curtin, uh, my first choice was Patrick Wilson. Ooh, Ooh, love that. Yeah. I also thought, interesting that you mentioned Jesse Plemons, because I also thought Matt Damon would be good in the role, but I would go it with... It would be. Very, uh, very Labeef from uh, yeah. True Grit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, my first choice for Howard was Jeff Bridges. Oh, I, that's a great call. He crossed wow. my name, too, actually. Yeah. But yeah. then I, I, yes. I also thought Again, True Grit. Uh, Woody Harrelson or Mark Rylance could pull it off. Ooh, Mark Is Harrelson old enough? He, yeah, he, he could be. He could be, because Houston's probably the 60s in reality at this point. Mark and, Rylance is also a really good Mar- pick. Yeah, Rylance is a good pick. And then here's my here's my really out on the limb one. Um, people would have thought I was joking years ago. Dobbs, Adam Sandler. Mm, wow. Yeah. I, can, I mean, Howard, Howard Ratner becoming I was just about Dobbs, to say, like, yeah, I could see. A, absolutely, yeah. Shout out to Adam Sandler, by the way, for... Uh, I mean, between uh, Uncut Gems and Hustler, uh, Hustler was not a bad. Hustler was not a bad film, but nominated for a SAG best his actor performance for performance is yeah. is really really solid. That's a really good performance. So uh, yeah, actually that that pick that pick's a good one. I actually like that. It, yeah, a, I agree. Another name that well, Josh, let's go with. Did you come? Did you have an idea of who you would? I do. I do. Uh, I'm gonna. So I'll start with Dobbs. I'm trying to think of a guy that like. Like I said, I'm trying to cast Dobbs and not replace Humphrey Bogart, but like it's also hard to ignore the fact that the original guy is played by Humphrey Bogart, you know. So like, I'm thinking of a guy who is sympathetic, but also has like a menacing energy behind him, but also could, you know, fill in the shoes of Humphrey Bogart in whatever sense that means. So uh, I thought of Michael Fassbender, mm, sure, who like really does have that menace beneath the surface, who like, but also is like a very uh, can really turn on the charm. When he needs to, like, really turn on the charm when he needs to, but also, like, it's really scary when he needs to. So I think Fassbender for Dobbs. I thought, with with your lead-up there, I thought you were going to say Bob Saget. <laughs> uh, R.I.P., who's, who's great. Um, for Curtin, I, I have a couple options. Uh, TJ, you said you were going to assume we were going to stay with three white guys. Uh, um, we, I assumed that. You don't have to. If we don't do that, uh, Diego Luna for Curtin, who's, like, a very imp- empathetic, like, uh, level-headed guy. That that's the the curtain that I see. That's the character that I'm casting. And uh, I'm also being influenced by the fact that I just watched Andor a few weeks ago, and Diego Luna is awesome on that show. And that show is awesome. Really recommend it. Um, if not Diego Luna, though, um, Michael Stahlberg came up in my head as like again like an empathetic like uh you know call me by your name Michael Stahlberg, who I originally actually thought of. If we kind of shifted the ages a little bit and made Dobbs and Curtin younger men, then Stahlberg could be the Howard role, not unlike how he kind of you know mentors Chalamet in Call Me by Your Name. But I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the ages a little a little older because I think I think Diego Luna is a a couple years younger than Humphrey Bogart was when they filmed this. But um, so right now I have Diego Luna as Curtin and Michael Fassbender as Dobbs, and I'm gonna go. My pick for Howard is like really obvious and it's a it's an ice cold take but uh tom waits because tom waits oh. played this almost exact character <laughs> uh-huh. in the ballad of buster scruggs the coen brothers movie from a few years ago uh-huh. um if you haven't seen ballad of buster scruggs it's on netflix check it out uh it's an anthological where there's like five separate stories that have nothing to do with each other and one of the stories is a prospector trying to get gold and he's alone and it's played by tom waits and it's 
I'm sure Tom Waits watched this movie and watched Walter Houston's performance before being in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs because it is there's a lot of Howard in that character. So again, that seems like a really obvious pick on my part. But for the record, that is know, why, why fight it. That is my favorite chapter in from the. That is also film. my favorite yeah. chapter in Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah, that's uh, good night, Mister Pocket. <laughs> it didn't hit nothing important. That's a. Uh, I love that performance. I love that uh, bit of that movie. Yeah, I'm surprised no one went with. Uh... Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. <laughs> <laughs> Selena Gomez as Dobbs, or as, uh, as Howard. Howard, Duh. yeah. yeah. Howard. <laughs> I think Steve Martin would be Dobbs. Dobbs. Yes, Steve Martin and, is the Dobbs. Yeah, and yep, yep. Uh, Martin Short would be uh, Curtin. Yes, yes, because I we can't be entirely convinced. We we can't be entirely sure that Steve Martin hasn't at some point in their relationship shot Martin Short in the shoulder. I'm I'm sure it's it's at least he's come close. Let's agree he's probably come close. Um, that's that's that is a 2022 take or 2023 take, uh, if I've ever heard one. TJ, what else do we want to say about Treasures of Sierra Madre before we wrap up? Movie's awesome. That's what I gotta say. And we movie rips. Highly recommend this movie. It, it is fantastic, and I think it's it's timeless. To TJ's credit for mentioning the recasting idea, I think it's because the 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 story it can you can kind of pick it up at any point in time. And it's a very the characters are so well drawn. Yes, that's why it's fun to recast them to think about who played them. Because now, again, you know? it's the, it's not so much the film as we've discussed. It's not about the gold. It's not about the prospecting. It's about the characters. And what greed and, and, and these kinds of external and elemental pre- pressures can place on, on an individual. TJ, final thoughts on the movie? Having liked this film for a long time, it was nice to be able to revisit it for this purpose, especially within the context of watching the other 1948 films. Um, I did notice this time that even though I don't think Howard is particularly cynical, that the film has a very objectivist perspective, um, really showing within that natural landscape that I think it was Sergio Leone said, the setting of a Western is wherever life has no value. Love that. And I'll just end it there. Yeah, I guess to your point, TJ, it was on the opposite end of the spectrum because it was my first time seeing it, but like watching the other 1948 nominees, uh, we'll talk about this in the recap episode. I liked them varying degrees, but I was a little discouraged by none really jumped out at me like and really dazzled me and this really dazzled me and like it's it was refreshing to have a movie with a certain reputation and sit down with it and like it really living up to it and like i just had a great time with this and i recommend it and um it's great and i'm really glad i saw it and uh, i'll probably see it again at some point uh it's a great movie that's it that's closing the book on the five movies not only for best picture in 19 in the 1949 Oscars released in 1948. It's things I'm tired of making. And uh, I guess next week we'll have our recap episode where we talk about talk about the five of them as a whole, talk about how the Oscars went, talk about other movies from 1948, whether the Oscars got it right. Uh, we'll do our rankings, our personal rankings, and and uh, see how it stacks up against the Academy. Does that sound good? I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I think I'm willing to do that. <laughs> you have no choice. You're, 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 you're contracted in, You're a contract, yeah, yeah. yeah. A blood contract. I never read things before I sign them. Me and Ken have talked about uh, killing you and taking your share, though. So just like you know, be on the lookout for that. I guess. Yes, you're only protected by distance, my friend. Not, not, not by sentimentality at all. 
Well, and I, I would say the same thing to you, but I'm not young anymore, so I couldn't run and get away. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, I guess, or whatever people do with podcasts. We're a podcast. You've listened to them before. You know what to do. And uh, tune in again next week for our recap of the 1948 Oscar nominees. See you then. See you later. Adios. Adios.